Hungry Trilobite podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon is Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention. The next event is scheduled for June 24th through 26, 2002 in Norman, Oklahoma. However, they need your help to put on the next event. Please visit SoonerCon.com to find out how you can help make SoonerCon 30 a reality. The Hellmouth Convention The Hellmouth Convention is a celebration of all pop culture, but specifically things like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. It is held in Los Angeles, California, and the next event is scheduled for June 3rd through 5th, 2022. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship Fund. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today we're welcoming back Pat Jankowitz, who was in episode 34, and when Pat called me, he was so anxious to get talking that we just jumped right into it, which was a little bit of an abrupt start for an episode of this show, but he's old hat and he totally knows what he's doing. You're gonna notice that I went ahead and edited out a few things right at the beginning, which were mostly just technical details on the recording itself, nothing you'd be concerned with. Other than that... Let's get started with Pat Jankowitz right now. For more information, go to thehellmouth.org. Hey, as a Godzilla fan, I can never turn down an interview with Anchor Trilobites. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that, that is appreciated. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, it it's, seems like it was just yesterday we were talking, but like so much has happened since then. Well, now, I don't where know are you out of? You're out of the Midwest, right? Yes, I'm in Oklahoma City. Yeah, you're in OKC. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys were open before other people were. I have friends who did an effects movie there. You know, about about a year ago. You okay. know what I mean? When you when you couldn't do anything in California, they were able to make like a kaiju movie in the middle of OKC. That's amazing. It really is. I, mean, <laughs> I can see why it happened because just you know our vaccination rates were high, our infection rates were low. Right, I mean, right, right. we we came out of it for all the right reasons. Wow. But, like, when I do stuff for Fangoria or Star Wars, the magazine, Star Wars Insider, I talk to people and I try to get interesting stories, which is what you do. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. So we, are, we, are, uh, we are in the same uh, foxhole, friend. <laughs> Indeed we are. And that's, this is why I like doing this, because I like to find people like yourself who have a great perspective, but, you know, maybe they don't quite get to the right audience or the, their audience is still finding them. Like I know a lot of kids who are a lot younger who who don't know where to look for guys like you and it's like no no this guy's here he has a he has a track record pay attention to him. Oh thank you. Well to me it's more or less I mean uh, you you're basically filling the mall. I mean you're doing this with your podcast. I do this with the articles and stuff. You're trying to find people. I mean something like Star Wars Insider has had a million people in it. Big, small, and different you want to find people that they don't know, you know what I mean? I, mm-hmm. I want to find the American Greedo. I want to talk to Maria. She was actually Canadian. She's actually Canadian. But I want to find the American Greedo who was directed by George Lucas. I want to find the guy who, who was one of the, the different aliens in Moss Eisley. Because I know their stories are just as cool as Mark Hamill's or Harrison Ford's, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. And they're probably not quite as tired of talking about it. By the way, to me, running for Starlog and magazines like that, they, they were obsessed with trying to get everyone from Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And I would rather talk, I would rather talk to the guy, I would rather talk to uh, the guy who was in one episode than William Shatner. William Shatner's cool, but William Shatner knows everything you could possibly ask him. And he, mm-hmm. he's probably, he's pre-tired in advance. Mm-hmm. Whereas the guy who came on, the guy, the blue guy who came on and tries to kill Spock's father, you know, on an episode, he's much more interesting than anybody else because maybe it's the only freaking credit on his resume and he's going to dine on that for the rest of his life. You mm-hmm. know? I, I get a lot of that when I do have on one of the show leads from a Star Trek or a Stargate or, or something like that. Um, when I talk to those people, some people will come back to me and say, well, why didn't you talk about the show? 
this person has written three books about it. They've been in conventions for 20 years. Right, right, right. If, yeah, 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 yeah. And you want to, and by the way, in, again, you, as, a, as a journalist, as an interviewer, you want to read the room. And if you mm-hmm. know you're going to lose the guy, you're going to try and deliver the audience the stories, you're going to bore the guy. And if you bore mm-hmm. the main interview, the guy you're interviewing, you're going to turn off the audience that wants to hear those stories. Yes. The better way is to back them into it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I mean, the better way is you do an interview about their other stuff, and then you kind of walk them in. I interviewed the vampire, uh, the female vampire from an episode of Kolshak's Night Stalker. And we talked about everything else. And then when we went in the coal shack, she had nothing but great stories. I've never heard before, you know? Absolutely. Like, for example, uh, you know, he's no longer with us, but I found a fascinating story about Leonard Nimoy just two, three days ago. Okay. Are you I aware? I think I know the story. Which one, which one are you referring to? My brother just read me one. I did not know about him. Go okay. Ahead. Uh, did you know for a couple of years in the 50s, Leonard Nimoy was in the National Guard? That I did not know. Okay. He was stationed with another actor who was in the National Guard, Ken Berry. Ken Berry and Mr. Spock and Mr. Herbie the Love Bug? Wow. Yes. I mean, and just the fact that that connection exists blows my mind. Well, and even as a little kid... Ken Berry is a huge star to me. I mean, F Troop and all the Disney movies. I, just, I mean, if you're only seeing stuff with Ken Berry in it, he's the biggest friggin' star in the world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has that wow. screen presence. Yeah, he really does. But yeah, I mean, it's like stuff like that I want to bring out. And if I just sit there and, if, you know, if Leonard Nimoy was here and I'm asking him how long it took him to put on the ears in the morning, that's a waste of everybody's time. I'm sorry. Listen, but, one of my best friends is married to a girl who grew up next door to Leonard Nimoy. And her brother is a Trekkie, and he would lose his crap every time they saw the guy. It became a family joke, don't let Dave uh, talk to Mr. Nimoy because he's going to lose it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, to me, it's, it's more interesting to find somebody like Barney Berman, Barney Berman told me a great story. Uh, Barney Berman is the only uh, makeup artist to win. Uh, him and, uh, oh, man, I'm blanking on the name. Him and the, another guy he won who won for the 2009 Star Trek. They, they won. They were the only makeup artist to win an, order, uh, uh, an Oscar for doing a Star Trek movie. And uh, the other guy's the one, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but he did. Uh, he created Tonto's makeup in, in the Johnny Depp Lone Ranger. And the guy who played Mr. Spock did not have earlobes, the guy from Heroes. Mm-hmm. And the, when you see the movie, when you see him in the movies, he is wearing, he is wearing a cast of Leonard Nimoy's ears, you know, with the earlobes. The big earlobes you see on Spock in the J.J. Abrams trilogy, you know, the, the when he started, yep. those are Leonard Nimoy's ears that they cast on the first movie that they put okay. on his ears. Yeah, I never knew that. I think that's a great story. You know, it is. Nobody knows that, which is why it's one of the better stories. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that, I, go ahead. I said that that absolutely makes sense, and that is the kind of stuff I, I dig into. Yeah, I just uh, something meaty, something you come up with on your own, and you know, if you find out even one thing about something you're covering, to me, that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of getting down to what they what got them into that seat in the first place i mean sure leonard nimoy got you know his his big break as mr spock but if his you know real start was tooling around on the stage of the the, the, uh, the reserves with ken berry i mean that's a moment i want to capture because that's probably something he hadn't thought of in ages right 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 well like uh um i'll, I'll tell you a weird story about leonard nimoy um i interviewed a guy who died and I, I was writing for the Star Trek magazine out of England, still am. And I interviewed this great character actor. I, I was doing it for an interview in my Hulk book. But what I would do is I would take, if they had a bunch of genre credits, just to make some money while I was stuck on this book, I would sell the interview with them to like other magazines. 
And the guy I was interviewing was Paul Carr, who was the first. Paul did like Claudia Jennings movies. Paul did like The Hulk. Paul did a lot of genre TV, Galactica, that sort of thing. But Paul was the first crewman to die under Captain Kirk in Star Trek, essentially the first red shirt, even though he's not in a red shirt. And he was dying. I didn't realize this until a very good friend of mine, she's this wonderful actress. She's in touch with like uh, all of classic Hollywood. She said, Pat, dear, uh, uh, Paul is dying. I called the editors immediately. She goes, he's not supposed to last like three months. I called the editors in England and I said, whatever you do, run that interview because he doesn't have long. And if you want him to read it while he's here on earth, you know, and his wife told me at the funeral, him, her, he was much older than her. Him, her, and their teenage son read it on his deathbed. Oh, and wow. The only, and I wrote it a while ago. You know, it had been in the shoot, ready to run. So the only thing I hadn't done, what I should have done is I should have called the article Car Trek, because it was Paul Carr. Mm-hmm. And instead, I called it, and I forgot about this, and they ran it. And of course, he was on his deathbed. It was called Ensign Expendable, which I really regret to this day. Well, under the circumstances, that that was what he played at the time. It wasn't your fault that decades later he did happen to shuffle off this mortal coil. Right, right. Thank you. Thank you for that. But at the same time, I wish I'd remembered the title because Car Track would have been much nicer to go out on than Ensign Expendable, you know. I mean, I remember when Desmond Wellen from James Bond passed away. Uh, I, I heard about it mid-afternoon. By the way, by the way he, he didn't just pass away. He went into undercoming traffic and killed a much younger person. Uh-huh. Uh, you well, know, which, I, that's the part I regret is that he took someone with him, you know. Which is, which is horrible. Uh, yeah. But my, the point I'm making is that it was not a full six hours after I'd heard it that I started hearing the ejector seat jokes coming. Wow. I'm honestly I'm amazed they weren't immediate. <laughs> they might have been, but I was I was trying not to go with it, but yeah, it it wow. So yeah, I, I think Ensign Expendable by comparison is is quite tame. Thank you. But you know what? Car track would have been an easy fix. <laughs> sure. You know, so I regretted he was always laughing that I did Pirandello. I did Pirandello. What do you want to hear about? Star Trek, The Incredible Hulk, and the Severed Arm and Bad People. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I said, well, Paul, what, what did he, he had a great line. He was, he, he was from Louisiana, and very dry sense of humor. He goes, usually I play attorneys in bad Shannon, Shannon Tweed movies, which he did. If you look at every Shannon Tweed movie from the 90s, Paul was always the shifty lawyer. <laughs> I was also trying to think, are there any good Shannon Tweed movies? Oh, my God. Uh, uh, hold on, hold on. What's the one where she makes love to... Uh, uh, yes, there's one where in the middle of the movie, for no reason at all, Tanya Roberts starts having sex with uh, a Swedish actress in B-movies. Deja, or whatever her name is. And it's in, uh, Sin, is it Sin of Desire? Whatever it is. That's the best Shannon Tweed movie, and it has nothing to do with poor Shannon Tweed. <laughs> well, sure. Oh, although she's in a great movie. No, hold on. we got to give Shannon Tweed her, her, her credit. She's in a great friggin' Canadian movie directed by George Comatos, who did Cosmatos, who did uh, Tombstone. She's in a movie with Peter Weller where Peter Weller plays an ad exec who's losing his mind to the rat in his, uh, in his townhouse called Of Unknown Origin. So, yes. She's great in it. She has a really great nightmare sequence in it, and it's her best movie. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. I haven't seen it, but my you know, feeling... you know, if you're in LA, if you're in LA next month, either later this month or next month, Tarantino is showing it at the New Beverly. I recommend it. It's one of the better killer rat movies. All right, and I see. I like Shannon Tweed. At, I, I feel like her performances are good, but the material that I've seen doesn't make me want to follow her. Does that make any sense? I do, yeah, yeah. You're looking for something genre or meaty to sink your teeth into, and honestly, when I I always thought she was cute, and I ran into her. God Almighty, I had to do an interview and my cell phone died, and this is this is like 15 years ago, and I ran behind this old school hotel, 
and they had an old school pay phone that was going to have to use that because my phone was dead. She came up to use the phone for the same reason and joked about it. You know what I mean? I mean, and it's like, oh, wow, Shannon Tweed. You know what I mean? I go, I could never take a phone from you, Shannon Tweed, and give her the phone. But I, it, was, it was a nice moment. I always liked her before that, but that made me like her even more. I sure. mean, you look, at, you look at her in the B-movie thriller that she's done, and they always put her in those really hot, oversized librarian glasses. Mm-hmm. And she always pulls them off to, you know, she's always playing a lawyer, so she's always pulling them off to rub her head because she's studying so many law books, which have nothing to do with the main plot. It's just a bone that shows she's not just playing somebody pretty. She's playing someone smart, you know? Sure. Like I said, I, I, you, you get something out of the performance. It's the material itself that I don't tend to gravitate toward. I can hear that, you know? Uh, so, one thing I wanted to desperately ask you, though. Uh, when we talked last time, the, the pandemic had just started setting in. And we, yeah, we were talking about how the comic industry had been going through some really big shifts. Yeah, they still are, by the way. You know? Sure. But coming out on the other end of it, it's it's really amazing how much things have changed in that time. And from what I'm hearing, comic book sales have really spiked since at the tail end of this thing. Are you hearing that? I've heard some did. I mean, and, and it's the good stuff like Immortal Hulk. Other stuff they're throwing away by bulk, you know. Wow, okay. So I was, that's what I was trying to get at is, what are you seeing happening after all this? I'm seeing the spike I'm hearing about is in indie comics. A lot of indie comics have taken off, you know, mm-hmm. and I, and it's stuff like the, I'm just I'm just so sick of how bland everybody's gotten. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, a DC can't do anything with Superman, but age up his his son because they're so bored telling Superman stories. Who wants to read that? You know. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, it, you're not taking a chance on a character like the Nick Spencer Spider-Man or Mortal Hulk. You know, I, I don't really see the purpose. You know. My feeling is, and I've always felt this way with movies, based on comic books, that when a movie hits, they start being very, very safe with the comic. When the Batman movies were big in the '90s. They really didn't do a whole lot with the character. I mean, they killed him and brought and they, they broke his back. But they really, you could kind of sense that they were trying not to go too far out of the lines for the people that were coming in from the movies. And now that we're constantly seeing movies, it seems like that safe zone has never ended. Well, uh, the problem I'm having is is exactly the opposite. I mean, you okay. look at stuff in the '90s when Marvel was tumbling into bankruptcy. They had a mid '90s Spider-Man cartoon that was getting huge ratings, and, mm-hmm. and the, the the writer producer John Semper was giving you classic the classic Stanley Spider-Man, and Marvel was like a snake eating its own tail as they tumbled into bankruptcy. Any little kid who would try to get into Marvel at the time, who tried to get into Spider-Man, the character brought them in. You would get into this gobbledygook clone storyline that had nothing where Spider-Man is a different guy and he's blonde and he's trying to be a barista because that was the cool 90s job for every indie movie and TV show. Mm-hmm. So you would, you, would, you would be exposed to what the ideal version of the character was on TV and it was the comic company that would let you down, you know? I mean, you can't, you can't kill off a character who appears on beach towels. You know, I yeah. mean, Mar- the Marvel Cinematic Universe has proved even even somebody like Spider-Gwen can have a huge following if you do it right, you know? So when you pick up the book and there's 90 million iterations of the character and it's this and it's that, and the character isn't what they want, the, the character isn't the ideal form they want it to be, well, then why are you going to read the book, you know? And with a lot of Marvel books, it's just a bunch of people sitting around arguing. You know what I mean? I mean, that's not Marvel. The arguments are part of the character. But there's action and there's fun. I would think, having covered comics for, like, Comic Scene and Wizard and books like that, they've lost the sense of fun, you know? When you say the sense of fun, are you talking about the way they're written, the way the tone is, the subject matter? I think I think all of the above. 
I mean, when 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 you uh, uh, when you pick up a Marvel book, I, my, I have a nine-year-old nephew, and and uh, him and his twelve-year-old brother are into video games because he can't get in the comics. He's just bored with them, you know. I mean, uh, um, you try to launch him on Marvel, and the Hulk isn't the Hulk, or somebody's another character. The only real books, and he can't, he's, he's probably too young for Mortal Hulk, but you know, you you just you want to get. You you want to get them into the, I uh, um um what's his name told me this oh gosh uh, Michael oh, oh come on uh, Michael uh, he's gonna kill me um uh, he won the Pulitzer Michael werewolves in their youth oh gosh I'm blanking on his name he was one of the writers in Spider Man too but he was telling me how. He had to give his kids like thirty-year-old reprints of of X Men because the books were unreadable currently. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I do know what you mean, and that's why I'm glad the reprints exist. I, I've started buying those almost exclusively. Yeah, cause, I mean, the, the X Men has never been as good without Chris Claremont. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, um... you know. Uh... Uh, it's just, it's never been as good. You know what I mean? I mean, Michael Chabon, Michael Chabon told me that. He, he had his daughter reading like 30-year-old X-Men reprints because the books were so horrible. He said they, they got so far away from everything, there was nothing for kids. And Marvel's been better about getting a kid's market for their books. But the uh, everyday the everyday continuity is gibberish, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be the, you have to be in your twenties to figure out what's going on. A nine-year-old's not going to have the patience for that, you know. He's going to do what his brother's doing, and his brother's playing video games. Especially when you have to go back ten years, possibly even before you were born, in order to get the context for whatever story you're reading. Exactly. Every every few years, they lose track of that, and they they just the books go down this rabbit hole they never come back from, you know. I do know, and that's – it's unfortunate. I love the long stories. I love the winding stories, the stories that change things drastically. But at the same time, when you, when you, you don't come back from that, when that, that's, that's a, a point of no return, the book's going to have to reflect that or it's going to lose its way. Exactly, exactly. If, if, if you're not delivering the, the promise of the book, you're not delivering I mean, it's like Marvel, when, when you had a bunch of creators get bored with the characters they were doing, so they're creating younger teenage iterations of the character. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, um, the Riri Williams character I thought was terrible. You know, when you took over Iron Man, everyone knows if Iron Man steps down, it's Rhodey. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they were ignoring continuity to create a bland character at the central of the book. And it just... It was a complete betrayal of the readership, and the readership just stopped reading most of them, you know? That's how I felt when the, the New 52 came about in D.C. about you know, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it was. Yeah, I, I know, you know, I can tell you, that's actually a decade on. I actually covered that, and I think uh, Bleeding Cooler, someone announced it was a decade old as of yesterday. You know? Okay, fair enough. And it wasn't that I didn't think there was good stuff to be found there. But I saw all the changes made to the core of the characters, and I couldn't detect where the, the, the story benefited from it. It seemed like it was changed for the sake of change. And right. They, were, they, were, they, turned they turned Superman into Spider-Man. Nobody wanted that. No. Spider-Man is doing fine without stealing from him, you know? Mm-hmm. And every issue was like, oh, his identity revealed. You know, you've done that a million times. You're setting up the continuity of your new universe. I mean, you could get people reading it with John Romita Jr. drawing it. How bad is that? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, to me, if you change the hood ornament of the character too much, you lose the core audience. What I loved about that is they changed every character but Batman because he was the only one who was still selling. <laughs> yeah, point taken. Now, mm-hmm. let me... Throw this out at you as a possibility because I've heard some people in the know suggest that this could be a good idea. What if, for all these really crazy stories that they were going to do, if they were just to commit to making miniseries 
six or 12 issues. We're going to tell this crazy story, and then we're going to let it go forever. We're not going to try to make an ongoing book out of it. Do you think that would be better or worse? But see, the problem with that is that defeats the whole purpose. I mean, comic books are essentially, they're printed on pulp, and they're meant to be continuous. They're mm-hmm. meant to keep going to keep you reading. You know, I mean, I remember Stan Lee telling me he, cre- he basically came up with continued stories because he used to listen to radio soap operas as a kid. And he knew that, uh, and he said, because he was doing, he had to provide the story for whatever book he was on, and because he was doing like eight books, he would try to drag each storyline as long as possible because then he'd have to think of a new one if he didn't. So he would, and he goes, sometimes you'd get interested in a character or something and you'd keep it going. And, and uh, uh, the problem with a miniseries like that is as soon as it sells, that's the direction you have to go in, you know? Mm-hmm. Company, profits, company profits are there. You have to keep it going, you know? You'd be crazy not to do eight Spider-Man books a month if that's what the market will bear. You'd be crazy not to do six Batman books a month. And, you you know, people don't want... People don't want emo Batman. They want Batman uh, thumping on muggers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, uh, uh, some of those characters have to remain cinematic ready. But you can see that. I mean, if it's time to make the donuts, you've got to make what people in the market will buy, you know? Yeah, and that's, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I sometimes feel like we're getting to the point where we just keep pushing stuff out and, and we don't recognize when the market is tired of it. And I think right, that's where right. or, or they'll milk it, they'll milk it till it bleeds. I mean, if you, mm-hmm. if you keep pumping the same pump, and you've worn out that storyline, move on. Mm-hmm. On the, Kevin Smith, on the other hand, would say that, and he said this many times, comics have a problem that they're, they're perpetually a second act. They never really start stories and never really finish them, so you, you can't get the drama that comes from the beginnings and endings. Yeah, he's right. That, that's, why people love, that's why people loved Watchmen. There was a solid beginning, middle, and ending, you know? I mean, but even something like Dark Knight Returns, which was the other big selling graphic novel, they couldn't kill Batman because they would eventually have to serialize him. And that that iteration of Batman sold so well, they they pumped it till it's dead. You know, the the, mm-hmm. the later Dark Knight books are all garbage, but you can't kill the main character. You can't do this. Whereas the Watchmen, they killed half of them. They finished. There's a finite ending to the book, which is why people love it. You know. I enjoyed the movie The Dark Knight Rises. And it wasn't as good as the previous one, but I did think it was pretty solid. And the, why I always say that is it was a great way of ending a story that's not designed to end. Right, 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 right. If, if you committed to saying we have to end this, that was about the best way you could have done it. Yeah, I mean, and, and, the, and the book, that storyline was so unsatisfying in the comic. Batman has his back broken, and a guy you've never heard of shows up to avenge him? Who gives a crap? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? That's an unsatisfying ending. But by having Bale in the cave being uh, uh, straightening out his own back and coming back like the Count of Monte Cristo, that's kind of cool. My only problem with that, the whole end of the movie was, you know, uh, um, I thought they botched Robin, and, you know... It, Towards the last 20 minutes of the movie, I, I kind of had enough of Batman. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, in the, that Robin character was not supposed to be in the script. They, it was kind of a very, very late addition from what I've heard. Wow. You know, yeah, yeah, it, it was one of those things. Well, I, I'd interviewed, I'd interviewed uh, uh, the director. I'd interviewed uh, him on the earlier movies, you know, mm-hmm. and Christopher Nolan. Yeah. And he was telling me, I don't believe in Robin. He said uh, uh, he had a really great British. He had a really great, great British response. He goes, uh, Robin was a product of the nineteen, the late nineteen thirties, when the depression led you to have this apprentice system. You know, mm-hmm. everybody had an apprentice because the kid would drop out of school to support the family, and he learned to be a plumber from the guy down the hall. You know, and this is what Nolan told me, and so he goes. So the idea of putting a young boy in danger to take over your job is archaic, you know, and he didn't believe in that and he wasn't going to do that. So why have Robin at all, you know? 
Oh, yeah, he was very much against the whole concept, and it the Jason Gordon Levitt character was forced on him in a manner of speaking. I think they slipped it in pretty well, though. I, you know, I, I, the character bugged me because he didn't really, he didn't feel organic. It's always when, it's always when like 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 it's with the '89 Batman. You just want to stick with Batman, and they keep shoving Robert Wall down your throat as the access character. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I mean. In the original script, in the original script, I think uh, uh, before Warren Scorn fixed it, I think Vicky Vale reading a bunch of magazine articles is the one who figures out who who has the flashback of Batman's parents' death. That's unsatisfying. It's got to be him, you know. Yeah, and I, 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 there are so many ways that I could see doing that. So many ways that I would like to see them try to to put a better spin on it. But you know, we all have our fantasy casting and fantasy scripts for movies. Yeah, I mean, they did the. You know, you got to do the ending that works for you. That ending worked for Nolan, and I always liked Bane. I always liked the 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 uh, the, the Chuck Dixon Graham Nolan iteration of Bane. I thought was always an interesting character. I think uh, uh, Dixon told me he was trying to come up with an evil Doc Savage, and that to me was interesting. You know what I mean? I mean, they they sort of went with that for the movie. Making him an urban terrorist, I thought was really interesting. But once he takes over and he turns into a hellhole, I mean, there was really nowhere to go once you painted yourself into that corner, you know? Mm-hmm. And on, on the other side, you know, looking at the 89 Batman with, you know, the, the sensibilities of the time, people didn't necessarily want a comic that would get bring in all those side characters. We were just happy to have a superhero on the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just getting Batman and the Joker in a serious movie on screen was a hell of a lot of work, I'm sure. You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. I, you can't... I mean, that's 11 years after Superman the movie, and it took them that long to do Batman. That's astounding, you know? Yeah. It was like they couldn't believe they would be able to pull it off again. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they almost didn't. I mean, they tried to shove Robin and Joker and Penguin all into the same movie. You know? And, and it's like... I mean, it was just, to, you know, and the idea that they even got one movie of Batman fighting the Joker that was cool and fun and weird and popular. You can see what happened in the second one when Burton tried to follow his vision. They're all they're all drooling blood or slime from their mouths. And that they lost the they lost the kitty market. As soon as Penguin started drooling and McDonald's tapped out, there was nothing they could do except pull it and. Batman had to go family friendly before Nolan got to relaunch it. You know, uh-huh. I will say without even hesitating, Batman Returns is my least favorite Batman movie ever. Wow, really? Yeah. Over Batman and Robin? Yes, by a good margin. I I can occasionally sit down and just spin Batman and Robin for a laugh. There's some good stuff in the set design. There's there's some moments where the dialogue really does pick up. I don't. Totally hate that movie. It did serious damage to my kidneys. I, I won't lie there. Um, I went to see Batman and Robin two days after it opened in the theaters, and I had the, the giant trash can-sized Coca-Cola. <laughs> and, and about two-thirds of the way through the movie, I'm like, I really have to go to the bathroom, but I'm sure the movie's about to get good. I just have to wait for it. You poor bastard. <laughs> yeah. So 25 yeah, minutes. I remember when Batman and Robin, I remember I was in, uh, I was in Barnes and Noble, Santa Monica, like the week before it opened. And the writer was there. Oh, oh my God. What's his name? Um, um, he also did Beautiful Mind and stuff. He won the Oscar. And his friends were teasing him with a Batman and Robin magazine. And he kept telling them, this is a week before it opened, and he kept telling them with the, the, the Santa Monica Barnes & Noble on, on, on the promenade, I saw him, I saw him, and he said, it's not my fault, nobody's going to know it, I'm going to take such a beating when this thing opens. And I remember when it opened and it was as horrible as it was, yeah, he took a complete beating. I mean, he still cashed the checks. Sure. But that must have been a really rough week. <laughs> well, I- you know, and, and that movie botched Bane, who I think is one of the great last great characters to pump out of the franchise. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. As, as far as the recent ones go, I think that would be the, the way to. Bane, Bane does take the tops there. I, I like Bane a lot. I'm a Bane fan. 
Yeah, yeah, an interesting character. And I mean, they they had a pro wrestler playing him in glitter makeup, which is terrible. And you saw when Nolan did him, he was a really scary, cool character. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, the urban terrorist you mentioned in the Nolan movie... That that does work, and it's slightly different than the the version of Bane, the drug addict Bane from the original comics. But I think it's a good evolution of it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, it's you know, it, it, he, they made the character cool, which is all I asked. I mean, I, I again, whatever whatever third act problems I have with the movie, Bane's cool, you know, mm-hmm. and, and people, I mean, you would see Bane being used in politics. I noticed. Uh, uh, I noticed during the pandemic, whenever a, a mayor was making too many demands of the public, people would start calling him Mayor Bane or running shots of the character, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> no, because Bane is sort of the mayor of the movie by the end of the film. <laughs> and I always liked the character of Robin too. I know Nolan wasn't big on him, and. He was not a very popular character until Chris O'Donnell came along in the mid '90s. There was a, a lull in the Robin popularity. You know what? No, no, I would I would disagree with that. I think okay. the Burt Ward Robin. I, I think the Burt Ward Robin, the Burt Ward Robin, I think is like 55 years old. But that was the iteration every kid knew from Super Friends, from Batman the animated series. People love Robin. You know, it's just you got to do him right. You know, sure. I, I think. When DC went out of their way to make him cool with, with the Teen Titans and stuff, Robin's a great character. Robin's an access character for a lot of little kids. I mean, there's no... You know, think about it. They take popular characters all the time and they try to make a teen sidekick. You know, like like Jimmy Olsen works, whereas mm-hmm. all the Superboys following Superman around do not work. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, the, the access character is really important, Jimmy Olsen and Robin. You're experiencing this story. They're they're very, very, very important character because they're bringing in the little kids. The the little kids are never going to be Batman, but you can imagine he'd be Robin. And I think that's really an interesting way to do the book. So you're right. They made Robin a joke, but there's never been a point where Robin wasn't popular. Robin's always been selling action figures and beach towels, you know? Uh, The word always I have a little bit of an issue with just because I – okay. I was born in 81. I was uh-huh. eight and a half when the, the 89 Batman movie opened. And perfect, that... by the way, perfect age for it. And if you look at the 89 Batman figures, they made a Robin. Robin's not in the movie, but they sold an S ton of Robin toys. That, well, that, that was kind of where I was going with this is that the, the, the Robin figure they made was from Toy Biz, and it was a repackage of the Superpowers Robin from earlier yeah, in the, the decade. Super, you're exactly right. It was the 80, I wrote about this uh, for uh, maybe a Wizard offshoot. They actually used the old molds. The same mm-hmm. thing with the Swamp Thing toys in the ni- in 1990. They used they canceled another wave of superpowers when they were going to mm-hmm. do Man Bad, Catwoman, and Swamp Thing. And when there was a Swamp Thing cartoon on. They ran and grabbed the old superpowers mold of the unmade Swamp Thing and just pumped those out. And they did. I, I'm with you, but but the point is they didn't make Robin as part of the the more prestige Kenner line that was directly tied to the movie, because right. that that what character wasn't big with that age group the, the age group I was in. Right, right. But at the same time, you did love Robin on Batman the Animated Series, and I'll bet. I'll bet you had a Robin in your Batmobile. In your Kenner Batmobile, there was a Robin. It may not have been given. You may not have asked for it, but I'll bet a grandmother and her aunt gave you a Robin. Oh, there there was a Robin in my Batmobile, and I did yeah, ask I'm for it. <laughs> but all of my friends were looking at me like, why the heck do you want that? Why, why didn't you buy another Joker, dude? Come on. <laughs> There's a Joker with flesh card. You could have gotten him. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, see, that was the thing. I was the lone guy out when that – and. You know, when the Batman the Animated Series hit, when Batman Forever hit, that was a couple of years in the future. Right, right, right. But, but, I mean, but remember when Batman 89 came out, there was, there was nothing from Warner Brothers on it. So people started running the Adam West show like crazy in the late mm-hmm. 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, again, MTV was running Batman reruns, which was bringing it to a whole new audience. TV Land was running it. Because you had no access to Batman otherwise, because there was a press blackout in the movie. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I just think anything kitschy and cool. And the Simpsons and Family Guy have done a good job of keeping the Adam West Batman alive. You know, I interviewed Adam West before he died. And he was so pleased that Family Guy had made an Adam West action figure. He goes, there's nothing about Batman related to this figure. He goes, I have a whole new secondary audience of people who saw me on Simpsons or Family Guy, you know. Absolutely. And I, I, I've joked about this online a couple times. I'll, I will say that one of the things that's happened to me in my life is that Adam West has given me a acting lesson. But it's true. I met him at a con, and uh, I had asked him about his Family Guy business, and I had said to him, uh, "What's it like being acting as yourself, but not as exactly yourself, as kind of a caricature of yourself?" And he looked at me and says, well, "What do you want me to give you an acting lesson?" I'm like, what? "Yes, <laughs> yes, I do." <laughs> so he. He actually went through the whole process in his head about just picking some weird mood he has and running with it until the cows come home. <laughs> but see, that's interesting. You know what I mean? I mean, he was very, he's very dry and he's very funny. And it's a stylized performance that's been around forever, you know? I'm convinced, by the way, I'm convinced Tarantino was going to cast him as Sam Wanamaker. If Adam West hadn't died... He had Nicholas Hammond play the role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he's beautiful. But when you watch the movie, it feels like that would have been Adam West's cameo in the movie. You can tell. I'd interviewed Adam West, and Adam West was hoping upon hope Tarantino would use him before before it was too late. You know, and he was really honored when Travolta does the bat dance, the Batusi in the middle of Pulp Fiction with Uma Thurman. He loved, you know, all the all the references to his show and different Tarantino projects. You know, the the really Batman in True Romance and everything else. But I mean, pop culture is cyclical. There, you know, there'll be the Robin period and there'll be the period without Robin. You know, I mean, but he'll always be there in the marketing because there'll always be a market for Robin. You know, he he succeeds. Trying to give Iron Man a teen sidekick is stupid. Giving Batman one makes sense, you know? It does. And I, I, I do take some comfort in knowing that there's cycles to these things and, and some characters fall in and out of favor because it, it, it reminds me that it's not absolute saying, I don't like this character, I don't like this title. You might just need to wait for the marketing to shift or a new writer to come on board. Right, fresh blood, you know? Have you ever had the experience where you consistently don't like a character until a new writing team picks up? Yeah, yeah, actually. You know what I mean? I mean, if somebody's bored and they're running it bored, of course you're not going to be into it, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you, look at it, if you look at a book, I liked The Incredible Hulk. That was a childhood favorite. The, the, the book was a childhood favorite. And... You'll get runs in the Incredible Hulk by a guy like Peter David or a guy like Bruce Jones where they just make it dance. And then whoever, you know, over the last few years, it was kind of a, a I couldn't read the book. It was just boring. And then they relaunched it with the Immortal Hulk. And suddenly in, in everything you love about the book, you love again because they're putting it in weird new context, you know? I do. And I, I found that many times that I will just totally see a character in a new light and, and want to get on board. I, I, I'm a huge fan of the Roger Stern Supergirl. I which, love Roger Stern. That's, that's the, uh, that, that's the mutated clone thing, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're, <laughs> she's dating Lex Luthor and everything. I love Roger Stern, period. Roger Stern is one of those guys. Roger Stern is one of those writers who never gets enough credit I mean, they only notice him when he's running with, if he's running like with, with uh, John Byrne or John Byrne during the artwork. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, the Roger Stern run in Spider-Man, the Roger Stern run on, uh, on Hulk, the Roger Stern run on, people forget he wrote, Roger Stern is this Canadian writer, and yet he wrote one of the greatest Spider-Man stories of all time, The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man, you know? I mean, and that was, that was only like an eight-pager in the middle of another Spider-Man storyline, 
But he busted out what is one of the classics of the book, a story Stanley told me made him cry, you know? Yeah. What higher honor could you have? One more time. I said, what oh, yeah, higher... what higher honor than making Stan Lee freaking cry reading mm-hmm. a story about his own character? You're exactly right. And Stern is one of those guys. He had a great run on Captain America with, uh, with, with, with John Byrne. Stern is one of those guys, they'll rip off the stories every now and then. Uh, Mark Wade kind of knocked off the, the, the Stern-Byrne run. And it's like, you know, and it's like if you read the, the Stern-Byrne, two Canadians did the best Captain America stories you'd ever read, you know? They had an amazing run of Spider-Man, the, the Supergirl, the, the Stern. I think Stern did the whole... Uh, 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 Stern to, didn't Stern take over after after Burn on, on Man of Steel or my, uh, on the Superman books? I want to say so. Uh, mm-hmm. My memory on that is a little bit fuzzy, but yeah, I think you're right. But he's just was one of these super underrated writers. More people should know who Roger Stern is than do. You know, I would love to have him on the show because I want to pick his brain on all sorts of stuff. You know what? Go after him. Go after him. You know, and, and what do they say? The prettiest girls never asked to dance. <laughs> There's sometimes I've found with the, uh, when the interview is I do, even if you go after what you perceive as a big fish, but don't mm-hmm. see interviews with them, they're just waiting to be asked, you know? Sure. Well, and I, I, I never mention who I've asked to be on the show and who I haven't, because that's, you know, if, if, they, if somebody wants to say no, that's, that's their prerogative. No, no, no. I, as, a, as a journalist. I understand. That's between you, God, and your interview. Right. You know I mean? So, I mean, you'll, you'll pardon me if I don't make any further comment on this, and I just say I would love to have him on the show anytime. Okay, good. good, good. Put that out there, because you never know who or what is going to hear it and bring it to, to, to Roger, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but, frankly, it'd be fun to have. I mean, there's so many cool guys who should have more interviews out there. I mean, like, like the late Bernie Wrightson. Bernie Wrightson was a mensch. Bernie Wrightson was a prince. You know, he'd give you the shirt off his back. A really, really sweet guy and a great interview. And not a lot of people talked to him. A lot of people would talk about Bernie Wrightson, but they never went up to him, you know? Well, I don't want to discuss... Uh, I don't want to push aside my current guest here, Pat. We're going to have to wrap oh, this up. But I'm honored, sir, and thank you for having me on Angry Trilobite. I will be. I, I'm glad to have you, and I want to make sure I have all the links to your work in the show notes from this episode and the last one. And where are the cons you're heading next? Well, that depends if there's a con. <laughs> I mean, San Diego has been a uh, a homeless COVID shelter, and they're supposedly coming back in in, in December. I don't see that happening. It's been a homeless COVID shelter for like two years, so I, I they're gonna have to they're gonna have to literally go through that place with, you know what I mean? I mean uh, uh, the cons on the West Coast cons. I'm probably gonna keep it in the West Coast. The con I love more than any other con is Monster Palooza and Son of Monster Palooza, and it's run by the Brodsky family out of New York. It is the most satisfying, cool convention. The, the guests are all chill. The people are all chill. It's a lot of fun. If you've never done Monster Palooza or Son of Monster Palooza, I highly, highly recommend it. It's the real deal. And if you have done Monster Palooza, I would like to know about it. So you could email me at bossicpodcast at yahoo.com, tag me on Twitter. I would love to see more about this con. Yeah, it's fantastic. It, there's a reason it's one. There's a reason it's run Rondo's this best convention. It, it, it is. It's the very best convention. You know what I mean? I mean, I love it more than San Diego. I know that sounds like blasphemy, but I love Monster Palooza more than San Diego because it's like like-minded, uh, dark spirits, and a wonderful weekend with a lot of good people. You know. One of the best cons I've ever seen was held in a gymnasium in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So you don't have to t- convince me that a smaller con can be more fun. Uh, to me, the, the, the con thing, you, you'll never forget the first con you went to. You know what I mean? I, mean, I, remember, I remember going to one in, in a VFW hall in Detroit, Michigan, you know, and, and you, meet one, uh, you meet one Marvel artist or something, and as a kid, that makes your day, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
you know, that VFW Hall suddenly becomes the most important convention because it's your first one, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the, the, what made the one in the gymnasium so special to you? Well, honestly, because even though it was a small con in scale, it was huge in terms of the amount of time they put into it, and it had been around a while. So you would get yeah. Shatner there. You would get Nimoy. You would get the big names because they knew it would be well run. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. And, it is, and OKC, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was one of those I things. Mean, that, it was a hidden gem in the Midwest. Wow. Wow, wow. Yeah, see, to me, a convention like that is great. And you, you realize they're there because they're happy. I mean, I've heard people going to conventions where the guests are getting bounce checks and leaving. You know what I mean? I've heard of that, too. Not going to name names. I, yeah, exactly. But it makes it more colorful. I, I like it. I just, I think the the idea of a good convention, it, to me, it rises and falls in the fifty cent bin. If they every convention should have a fifty cent bin of a beat up comics on the floor that a nine year old or an adult can find something of interest in, mm-hmm. you know. The fifty cent bin, I, I think, is a sacred trust between reader and the convention. I remember uh, one comic. I, I remember at San Diego one year. Uh, um, I was going through a great 50 cent pin, you know what I mean? It was just a lot of trash that, 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 would, that would cover a hole in your convention, in your collection. Oh my God, I was looking for this book. And I remember people were stopping and smirking and I felt bad. I thought they were smirking at me, but no, they were smirking and excited because, uh, Thomas Jane, the Punisher was going through one of the bins and had a big pile. And on the other side, Guillermo del Toro was on his knees, and he had a bunch of comics piled up. A, a great 50-cent bin brings everybody. You know what I mean? Well, one of my pandemic changes in life is I have decided there is one comic I want a full run of. And I'm probably not finding him in the 50-cent bin, but I want to have every comic from the original run of Jimmy Olsen. You know what? I'm so happy you said that because... As a kid, when you go to a convention with money, you know what I mean, you from your allowance from mowing the lawn and picking up dog crap in the yard and all that, mm-hmm. I would get five bucks. And I remember doing these VFW Hall conventions, and you couldn't afford any of the old comics. All the old comics were very expensive. And But in every 25 or 50 cent bin, you would find Jimmy Olsen, the 100-year-old copies of Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, and the stories, they would always have these beautiful Neil Adams covers and these really crappy inside art. Mm-hmm. But I got a taste for these Jimmy Olsons because suddenly they were so absurdist. Jimmy Olsen was always going undercover and drag for some reason. Mm-hmm. He was always putting on a pencil skirt and like a, a page boy wig to go as a girl or he would go as... or he, And then all the stories were... Superman was being a dick to him on the cover, and on the inside, it would have nothing to do with the cover. The cover, the Neil Adams would just bust out the cover to sell Jimmy Olsen. There's this old comic I remember. Uh, um, Jimmy Olsen, you're, the, the Russians, the Russians in the United States. That's how old it was. It was a Cold War comic. The Russians in the, the United States are battling over an island. And they said, okay, we're going to bring our, our, our most capable American to face down the most capable Russian. You know, and you're thinking, well, of course they're going to pick Batman. You know what I mean? <laughs> and for whatever reason, the Russian's a big, bald, muscular guy in a striped shirt. I remember this. He's, uh, he's a big, bald, muscular guy in a striped shirt. And it's Jimmy Olsen, for some reason, they picked to represent America. And it's just... I, whatever, I think it was from the, the swinging 60s, and you'll immediately recognize it's the, it's the Captain Kirk Gorn episode, but it's done with a Russian and Jimmy Olsen. There you go. And I it's love just that. Hilarious. It's, it's, a hack writer. it's a hack writer using a hack solution because it works, and you love every minute of it. <laughs> that was what the, the charm of that comic was, is that you would get usually a couple different stories, and they would be... Of a different genre, it would be either, you know, Jimmy's just having a little romantic story about his girlfriend, or then it would be a superhero story with, you know, him backing up Superman, or then there would be just this weird, crazy, almost cartoonish story, like something out of Looney Tunes, and they were sold in the same book. 
about the same character. Right, right, right. I, I, I remember summering in Seattle. I, I remember summering in Seattle, and and they had a used, they had some great used bookstores, and I used to buy these to Jimmy Olsen's. You know, because you, you know what I mean. I mean, uh, as a kid. You're buying these Jimmy Olsen's because they're super cheap. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Marvel and everything else was more expensive. But you would buy these disposable Jimmy Olsen's, and they were just absurdist. I mean, Jimmy Olsen is facing down like these grasshoppers. And whatever, these alien grasshoppers are walking around the two legs, and they're, for no reason at all, it's just the artist trying to, probably an old busted-out artist, but he's, he's drawing them, and the, 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 the alien crickets, are walking around with two legs and they're speaking English, but they're wearing cowboy boots and they're all wearing holsters. They're keeping ray guns in these old cowboy holsters. And by the way, to freak you out, I mean, people forget Darkseid's first appearance was in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. Yes, and I didn't know you that know? until I had one in my hand. Yeah, I bought it for a quarter, and then after Byrne made uh, Darkseid cool again, uh, um, after Darkseid became like a major player again, that comic is now worth like 200 bucks, you know? I got three of them for a quarter. Darkseid smoking cigars sitting in a dark room, you know? And, and people will talk about, you know, the wonder of, of Jack Kirby and how he left us too soon and he revolutionized comics. I'm like, you know most of Jimmy Olsen is like the ass end of his career, right? I mean, it's right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, and by the way, when you read the his his Jimmy Olsen, his his Superman is terrible. I mean, I like how he drew Jimmy Olsen, but and I, I mean it's blasphemy to say this, but it's true. When you look at how he draws Superman, he draws Superman like the Budman with a big Fred Flintstone nose, and what and, and people are giving the late Carmine Infantino who ran DC a lot of crap, but Carmine Infantino who drew Superman, you know, he created Batgirl, he drew Superman, created the new Flash, the new old Flash. But you know what I mean? I mean, so Infantino was having like Marvel DC artists like, like Kurt Swan and Al Plastino erase the, the, the big, because Kirby was completely off design. Uh, the, the, the Kirby Superman in half the panels you see is completely off book. So they would have Al Plastino erase the face and draw Superman the way he was supposed to look. You know, and Marvel did that too. People are, oh, what a slay. I, I remember reading in, in Comic Buyer's Guide like a year or two ago, they did some, what a slap in the face to the king. But the king had been out of those comics for a while. And, and obviously, because as a kid, you look at in the, the 80s, looking at those Jimmy Olsen covers, they were getting him totally wrong, and you would, you know, they would they would erase Superman's face and draw him the way he was supposed to look. One of the more famous Jack Kirby covers is the, when he went back to Marvel, and it's called the Mad Bomb, and and it's a beautiful giant hero shot of Captain America standing on a rioting street, and people don't notice, but John Romita Senior had to erase the face and redraw the face, and and. People use it as one of the best Kirby art of all time, but it's a Romita face. Wow. You know, he, was, he hadn't drawn the character in a while, and he got it wrong. And Romita stepped in, and Romita, to me, is my favorite artist, Romita Sr., I mean. Anybody who created MJ, the Punisher, Wolverine, Kingpin, deserves his props, you know? And, and he redrew the face, and you'll see that face on Kirby collections everywhere, and it's not a Kirby face. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. I love finding out stuff like that. You know, so, so get by Jimmy Olsen. Again, uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you a great example of why 50 Cent Bins matter. I'd interviewed David Goyer, and I'd read the Blade script before it came out. And, um, and I knew Blade was going to be huge. And so every time I went to a convention, I would buy a 25-cent copy of Tomb of Dracula 10, which was the first appearance of Blade. And I had like 30 of them, and I was selling them for like 100 bucks or more a piece, you know? Well, I'll tell you what, man. Let's get some conventions back, and you and I can comb the 50 cent bins looking for Jimmy Olsen. By God, I'm in. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Excellent. Sounds good to me, buddy. All right. Hey, thank you so much for having me again. Uh, your show is a blast, and I do love listening to it. I'm... And by the way, the, the title is a Godzilla reference, right? 
Well, not exactly. I'll tell you, the title is just because I like fossils. But if it's a big one, a big giant one that can fight Godzilla, I'm good with that too. <laughs> well, remember they're like the sea louse. They're like the sea lice that attach themselves to Godzilla in the first one and in Godzilla in '85. <laughs> I never even thought of that, but I like it now. I like it a lot. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Come back anytime, buddy. Thank you. Be well, brother, and uh, make conventions come back sooner than we think. Hope so. I would like to thank Pat for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. I think this was a fantastic episode that really showcases the perspective that Hungry Trilobite has and what our listeners are looking for. For the community building part of the show today, where we spend time talking about our community and how to grow it, but that I promise costs you nothing and takes less than five minutes of your time, I would like to reach out to the people outside the U.S., particularly because I'm always interested in the stories of my listeners and especially how they got to hear this show when they aren't my next-door neighbors in the U.S. So if you've found this show and you want to share why you listen or what you're looking for, please reach out to me at bossigpodcast.yahoo.com or on my Twitter feed at Aaron Bossig. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.